Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and I'm glad to have you all here today for a very interesting discussion. There are very exciting things going on in the Middle East right now, and a lot of us, I know, are thinking, what is going to happen? What can we do, if anything, to help? And we're going to talk about some of that in this discussion here. One of the things we do here at the Cato Institute is remind people that not every problem can be remedied by a law, and not every good thing should be a federal program. And one of the questions that lovers of freedom are being asked these days is, what can we do to help spread freedom and the rule of law around the world? And some people think the answer is invade repressive governments and overthrow, invade repressive countries and overthrow their governments. But just as we think that vigorous debate is usually better than censorship and charity usually works better than welfare and investing your own money usually works better than social security, so there may also be non-governmental actions that work better than government in advancing the idea and the practice of liberty under law. We at the Cato Institute think the United States Constitution is a brilliant design for both organizing and limiting government, and so we've distributed more than four million copies of this pocket edition. And more recently, we've published and distributed this bilingual English and Arabic edition. So one of the ways you spread the idea and the practice of liberty under law is you tell people about a successful experiment and you translate it into Spanish, Arabic, maybe other languages too. My colleague, Cato Senior Fellow Tom Palmer, has created programs in more than a dozen languages to spread the ideas of liberty through websites, book translations, newspaper op-eds, lectures, and seminars. Just recently, he and his colleagues were participating in the big demonstrations in Tahrir Square, uh, April 8th in Cairo. And his, those websites and programs can be found at atlasnetwork.org. And another example of how civil society, not the state, can advance freedom is the work of Gene Sharp. Gene Sharp is 83 now. He's been writing and lecturing about nonviolent protests for decades at Harvard and UMass and other places. His book, From Dictatorship to Democracy, can be downloaded in 24 languages, and the New York Times says it's been read in places like Serbia, Burma, and recently in Tunisia and Egypt. Peter Ackerman was first a student and then later a supporter and continuer and builder uh, of those kinds of ideas. And he's here along with Jack Goldstone to discuss what's happening in the Arab world and what we might expect next. I will introduce both of our speakers and then turn the podium over to our first speaker. Peter Ackerman received a PhD from the Fletcher School at Tufts University, where uh, he is now chairman of the board. He had a highly successful career on Wall Street. After that, he founded the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. He's author of two seminal books on nonviolent resistance, A Force More Powerful, A Century of Nonviolent Conflict, and Strategic Nonviolent Conflict, The Dynamics of People Power in the 20th Century. Uh, 
He was the executive producer of the PBS documentary Bringing Down a Dictator on the Fall of Serbian Dictator Slobodan Milosevic, which won a Peabody Award. He was also the series editor and principal content advisor for the two-part Emmy-nominated PBS series, A Force More Powerful, which charts the history of civilian-based resistance in the 20th century. And I should note he has very generously brought some of his books and DVDs and left them on a table outside for those of you who want to follow up with more understanding of these issues. Peter is also, I should note, a generous supporter and former board member of the Cato Institute. Our second speaker, Jack Goldstone, is the Virginia E. and John T. Hazel Jr. Professor at the George Mason School of Public Policy and a senior research scholar at the Mercatus Institute. His work on social movements, revolutions, democratization, and economic growth has won the Distinguished Scholarly Publication Award of the American Sociological Association and fellowships from the U.S. Institute for Peace, the MacArthur Foundation, and the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. He is a senior member of the Political Instability Task Force and director of the Center for Global Policy at George Mason. His books include The Encyclopedia of Political Revolutions, States, Parties, and Social Movements, Protest, and the Dynamics of Institutional Change, and two new and forthcoming books on the rise of the West in the world. For now, please welcome Peter Ackerman. Good afternoon, um, and thank you for having me, and thanks for the introduction, David, and I look forward to hearing from Professor Goldstone. I, I think we have a bifurcation of expertise here that's going to be presented to you because I'm not an Egyptian scholar, but I am a student of the dynamics of civil resistance, and I want to talk to you about that first because, to a degree, if you want to understand what will happen in Egypt, you need to understand at a certain level generically what happened. And so let me define first what civil resistance is. Civil resistance is what people do when they're living under oppression, but they have no viable military option. So they use strikes, boycotts, mass protests to basically challenge the legitimacy and the um, power structure of the authoritarian on the other side. The theory of civil resistance is that not all people, in, even in a closed society, are equally loyal, as um, Natan Sharansky says, that in these societies there's many, many latent double thinkers. And the job of these acts of disruption, which are essentially nonviolent, is to basically allow those who are these latent double thinkers to identify themselves and to figure out ways to mobilize and act, where they normally, when things are shut down and quiet, would never think of doing it themselves individually. So let me spend a second now talking about what civil resistance is not, because I've been on a 30-year jihad to try to clear the brush about mistaken notions about this subject, and I'm going to try to do a very, very quick two-minute reprise of that effort. First of all, civil resistance is not nonviolence. Nonviolence is, a, is an ethical position that people take. Now, certainly, when we think of these movements, we think of Gandhi and Martin Luther King. But at the end of the day, even though they had their own uh, personal prohibitions against the use of violence. It was the disruptive effects of the salt march in India and the bus boycotts in uh, the South that basically made them famous and basically put the kind of pressure 
on their opponents that basically created the change that, they're, that, that they've become iconic for. It is also not about conflict resolution. We're not here, when we talk about civil resistance, about resolving a conflict. We're talking about starting a fight and um, waging a conflict. So the first order of business is to create pressure of a different variety on an opponent until that opponent rethinks his position or ultimately the opponent has to basically leave the field of battle. Uh, just the weapons are a bit different, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. And um, the strategic theory underpinning how these weapons are used is also a bit different, but not entirely different than would be the case in a violent insurrection. It is also not about democracy promotion. Uh, post the um, end of the Cold War, um, many wonderful organizations in the United States, NED, NDI, IRI, the Freedom House that I was a chair of, went to the countries that had um, become recently free and shared with them best practices in legal systems, you know, uh, stock exchanges, uh, anti-corruption ideas, rule of law. That, that kind of democracy promotion is a function of what happens when the, when the battle is over. We're about talking about how the battle is waged. The other thing I would mention to you that um, Gene Sharp is didn't write about nonviolent protest, nor do I, because protest is only one of many tactics available to a civil resistor. Uh, these tactics include uh, strikes and boycotts, for example, in South Africa. The most potent um, uh, weapon used by the, uh, uh, the anti-apartheid opposition was the consumer boycott, not street protests and not protests uh, around the country. Um, as a matter of fact, my mentor, Gene Sharp, in his book, The Politics of Nonviolent Action, lists 198 different kinds of tactics that one could use. And they basically flow from the nature of civil society and what civil society is in relationship to the authoritarian and what the authoritarian wants to take from civil society. So really, there are basically two kinds of tactics. The first tactic is a tactic of commission. So a tactic of commission is what a civil resistor would do or choose to do that the authoritarian would want to have stopped. So a protest in the street, the authoritarian would want to have stopped. But there's a whole other variety of tactics that are called tactics of omission, which is what, um, uh, which are acts which the civil resistors stop doing that the authoritarian would like them to resume, like a strike or a, um, or a boycott. Um, also, it's very important to recognize that civil resistance is not an act of spontaneous combustion. Um, the, the idea that these things just happen in sort of a rolling thunder and then they all run to the uh, radio station or they run to the palace or whatever and they just sort of overrun the, uh, 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 the authoritarian is, is really not the right model. In every one of the successful cases, to the, purport, to the extent that these things were well-planned and thought through, and, um, and organized carefully, to that extent, they were likely to succeed. Interestingly, civil resistance is also something that regional specialists have been battering somewhere next to zero in their ability to predict, predict them occurring. And so if you look at many of the uh, specialists in the Middle East, they'll tell you they were caught flat-footed by what happened in Tunisia and what happened in Egypt. And one of the reasons is that they write about conditions in those countries, and they write about the interaction between elites. 
But this is something that happens from the bottom up, from grassroots, and it's very hard to predict, particularly from people who um, basically are giving policy prescriptions based on the interaction of, of elites in those societies with elites, let's say, with the uh, senior elements of American foreign policy. Um, another important thing to remember about civil resistance is that historically it's been a, it's had a far better success rate, in fact, dramatically better success rate than has violent insurrection. Uh, there's a study been done by um, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan that appeared in International Security that basically looked at 323 insurrections, both violent and nonviolent, since 1900. Two-thirds were approximately were violent, and their success rate was 27 percent. And the success rate of the nonviolent insurrections was twice that, was 55 percent. And also, civil resistance is far more likely, in fact, almost infinitely more likely to lead to a democratic result than would be violent insurrection. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find almost any case of violent insurrection that leads to a democratic result, because usually it's conducted by a very small group of people. And they said, well, gee, I just uh, won this, and since I took all the risk, I'll take all the benefits, and a democratic result doesn't occur. But in the civil resistance movement, the likelihood of success is directly proportional to the number of people who participate. The number of diverse groups, ethnic groups, gender, age, the more participation, the more likely you have success, and the more likely you have the participation, the more likely different elements of society develop habits of cooperation that, of course, are important in creating the rule of law and uh, the kinds of uh, democratic institutions that demand compromise and, um, and uh, empathy between others. Now, let me spend uh, a few seconds more on the origin of the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict before I show the movie. Um, as David mentioned, I wrote a book that was published in 1994 called Strategic Nonviolent Conflict. And as I like to tell people, we printed 5,000, and like Donald Trump, I wanted to make sure I had a sellout for my own book, and so I gave 2,000 away to my best friends. And I would ask them what they would think, and they'd say, well, gee, Peter, you know, it's sort of abstract, or they'd say they were sitting on my night table right below my John le Carre novel, and what they were basically saying to me is, never speak to me about this subject again. It was discouraging, but not too long after the publication, a fellow named Steve York came to me and he said, you know, I could take the cases in your book and turn them into a documentary. And I was skeptical, but after six months of remonstration, we went to WETA and um, they agreed to do a, a movie that appeared on September of 2002, uh, on September 2002, Monday, successfully called A Force More Powerful which told six stories of nonviolent resistance movements, the Indian independence movement, the Nashville lunch counter boycotts, the anti-apartheid movement, the Danish resistance to the Nazis, the um, movement against Pinochet, and the Ganan shipyard strike. And the purpose of this movie was to say, even though these events happen at different times in different places, and the stories are very moving, they're essentially the same story about how nonviolent tactics that are highly disruptive basically undermine the loyalty structures, uh, particularly in the security services of the people that um, are the authoritarian and basically makes their, their position untenable. Um, now, um, we did this movie and one month later Milosevic announced that um, unexpectedly and, and certainly again not predicted by the American foreign policy establishment that he had to step down and spend more time with his grandson. Everybody thought he was going to go out in a blaze of glory. And the reason he 
had to spend more time with his grandson because he realized that the military completely defected underneath him. So he did a movie about that. Uh, interestingly, when we went to see uh, the Otpor students and the other members of the opposition in Belgrade just after our movie was published, and we showed them, was produced, we showed them the story about Pinochet, they said, well, gee, if we had seen this movie four years ago, we would have known what to do, and uh, he would have left a lot earlier. So we started to discover that this, these, these movies had a useful pedagogical effect for dissidents. So we produced that movie, and ultimately we produced another movie called Orange Revolution, which was extremely well watched during the, um, uh, during, by Egyptians during um, the events prior to what happened in Tahiri Square. Square. But the important point here is that uh, as these movies now, in you know, 5,000 books uh, in the United States, uh, over 4 million people have watched these movies, and now they've been shown in 80 countries. They've been translated into 20 languages. The last language they were translated into was Pashto um, a few weeks back. And what happened, which was totally remarkable to us, is people, dissidents from around the world who saw these movies would come to us and said, I want to do what I saw in this movie. So they, they saw enough verisimilitude in that story, which might have been a different part of the world, to say, hey, I could learn something from that. But then they would immediately say, well, but our guy is so much more difficult, our situation so much more intractable. And I'd say, of course it is, but let's go and look at these stories and look at these cases, and let's try to create generic lessons from them and see if we can reverse engineer those lessons for your situation to give you the confidence to act. So we created the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict to deal primarily with dissidents. We've now dealt with dissidents in 35 countries in almost every case. In fact, I can't think of one that's not the case. Dissidents have come to us. We have never solicited their interest. It's always the other reverse because they're in a quandary and these movies provide them hope. Our principles of assistance are very simple, that our job is to give them a generic understanding of the dynamics of civil resistance, to give them a sense of uh, what it means to develop a strategy on their own. Uh, so we give no specific advice. We won't tell anybody you should show up in the square tomorrow and have a boycott the next day because it's too dangerous and unfair to these movements to do it because each one has their own specific cultural context. But what we are trying to do is create confidence-building measures to get people comfortable that the decisions they're going to make are the ones that they can rely on and allow them to act. Because at the end of the day, many people say, well, civil resistance movements don't work against this miserable authoritarian or in this condition or that condition. But in my experience, having worked and studied these movements, the real reason why they don't work is because the opposition has run out of imagination. No reason more. They come disoriented. They don't know what to do next. They don't have the confidence to act. So one of the, we have a variety of ways we try to get people confident and aware of what this phenomenon is. And what we've done now is create, because this is the YouTube world, we've gone from a 90 million video down to a sort of a 12 minute haiku that I want to show you, which is really a movie about frequently asked questions about civil resistance. So let's take a look at that and then I'll make some comments. Ferdinand Marcos, Augusto Pinochet, Wojciech Jaruzelski, Slobodan Milosevic, P.W. Bota. Powerful, ruthless strongmen with one thing in common, 
Their power was destroyed by nonviolent civil resistance. How were such powerful rulers defeated? It happens when people join together to resist the power of repression. In the Philippines, they called it people power. Usually, it's called civil resistance. It's a nonviolent weapon for ordinary people to use against repressive rulers. Civil resistance requires large numbers of people, but it's not only about numbers. The difficulty with nonviolent efforts is that they don't recognize the necessity of fierce discipline and training, and strategizing, and planning, and recruiting, and doing the kinds of things that you do to have a movement. That can't happen spontaneously. It has to be done systematically. How does it begin? When conditions become intolerable, people organize. Union leaders sometimes take the first step, or human rights groups, or religious organizations, or all of them working together. The main thing in the struggle is to get attention. To struggle in a corner where nobody pays attention to you is a wasteless effort, a useless effort. You've got, if you struggle, to attract as much attention as you can to your cause. At the start, the big problems are apathy and fear, and the perception that an adversary is invincible. In Chile, it took 10 years for the pro-democracy opposition to overcome these obstacles. Okay, so how do I organize protests? Public protest can be very effective, but it's a small part of civil resistance, just one of hundreds of tactics. Marches and rallies can be a mistake if you're not ready. It's easy for police and security forces to break up public actions. A few hundred people, or even a few thousand people in the street, are no threat to authoritarian power. Street actions put you and your supporters at risk. Until you've organized a truly mass movement, public actions may only show that you're ineffective or foolish. If not mass protests, then what? You have to decide. The choices are almost unlimited. You talk, debate, and plan. What to do? When? Why? Develop a strategy that ties it all together. Evaluate your risks. Strikes and boycotts can be powerful actions which involve large numbers of people in ways that don't expose them to tear gas, beatings, and arrest. It allowed for the whole community to be participants in the movement. Everyone can be a participant. Children can participate, women can participate, men can participate, young people, old people. Everyone can do the work. In South Africa, Anti-apartheid activists boycotted white businesses. Tens of thousands of customers refused to buy in the main shopping districts. They broke no law. They didn't risk beatings. But when they withdrew their purchasing power, 
the white business owners paid attention to their grievances, and the businessmen became their allies in demanding change. We don't have a charismatic leader. You don't need a charismatic leader. Only a few civil resistance movements have had leaders like Gandhi or Martin Luther King. There was no such leader in Chile or Serbia or dozens of similar nonviolent success stories. If a movement is too closely identified with a single well-known leader and that prominent leader is arrested, the movement may be paralyzed. As far as the police are concerned and their modus operandi was that, first of all, you tackle the leadership but we have taken preemptive action by creating numerous layers of leadership. When leaders are dispersed throughout a movement, their names often unknown, it's impossible to arrest them all. The movement continues even when top leaders are removed. This won't work in my country. You may be right. A nonviolent strategy may not succeed against every opponent. Many people doubt that it can work against truly brutal or totalitarian opponents. But the Solidarity Movement in Poland succeeded at a time when 70,000 Soviet troops were stationed there. Pinochet's military junta was defeated. In South Africa, Mass action, supported by international pressure, forced one of the most brutal regimes to negotiate. Civil resistance has succeeded in many situations that seemed hopeless. It was, in fact, mass organization which brought about the change in South Africa. That it was that, form, that mass organization which put pressure on the state to ultimately to change. I mean, that, that brought about the, the stalemate, the impasse where the state could no longer respond. What if my adversary uses violence? You should expect violence. Your adversary is not going to surrender as long as he controls police and security forces. Whatever you impose through violence, you have to defend through violence. That's why we think that violence is the strength of the weak, because they don't have arguments. They don't have moral authority. So whatever you achieve through violence, you have to defend through violence. But violent tactics didn't stop the opposition in Chile, Poland, Serbia, India, and other places. When force is used against nonviolent activists, the result may not be what the authorities intended. The main mistake of, of the regime was that they spread the circle of, of those who were under the repression. That's why this repression was counterproductive, because uh, it is like the third Newton law of action and reaction. When you raise the level of, 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 of repression, the resistance goes up as well. What if my adversary can't be persuaded? 
Civil resistance is not about persuasion. You are not appealing to your adversary's conscience. Your goal is to raise the cost of repression to the point where it becomes unbearable. Imposing economic costs is one way. Or you can try to disrupt normal life, to demonstrate that the authorities have lost control. When a population loses respect for its rulers, further disobedience and resistance become easier. Ridicule and humor can be effective, making the regime look silly and incompetent. Whatever you do, you need a strategy. If you do this, your adversary might do this and that. And so those are going to be your choices. And why don't you really think about three steps ahead? Why don't you involve some strategy and overall planning in, in your fight? And why don't you try to anticipate what's going to happen in six months from now? This will take too long. We can't wait. Consider the alternatives. You could try armed insurrection, but that requires money, training, and weapons. And armed insurrections fail far more often than they succeed. Of course, there are people that think that the only way to face violence is through violence. But that was out of the question. We will never have support for doing that. We will never have the capacity nor the ability to do that. So the only way was through a massive, pacific and organized society. You could wait and hope that other countries will impose sanctions or intervene. But you can't control what others do. And you, the people who have the most to gain or lose, can decide for yourselves what to do without waiting for someone else. Civil resistance has a far better record of success than armed struggle. And organizing mass resistance is an inherently democratic process. It's much more likely to produce a democratic outcome. How can I win? Every situation is different. But start with the essentials. You can't win without unity, planning, and nonviolent discipline. Remember the most basic principle. No ruler can rule if people refuse to obey, to go to work, to pay their taxes, to do what's expected. When security forces refuse to obey orders, and their loyalty can be surprisingly weak, no authoritarian can hold power for long. If enough people disobey and disrupt, power shifts, military and police loyalties crack, and change becomes possible. Your goal is to create cracks and then exploit them. How can I learn more? There's a lot to learn. Start with the resources on this website, which has links to others, and many articles, books, and films available in several languages. So what you can see is through these videos, we're trying to address the most frequently asked questions. But um, David, how much more time do I have? Five minutes, OK. So let me quickly make the most important point in our work, and that is that the development of skills by civil resistors are the biggest determinant of who succeeds and who fails. And what I'd like to do is sort of talk you through what skills mean. So can we dim the light? and?
contrasting strategic theories underpinning violent insurrection and civil resistance, why skills can make civil resistance a force more powerful. The next slide, please, or how do I do that? Just, okay. The common view of the battlefield, whether it's a violent insurrection, what's that? Stay at the mic. Okay. The common view of the battlefield, whether it's a violent insurrection, nonviolent insurrections, you have a leadership at the top that basically will never change their loyalties. You have elite below them, which can be in contention, and they're sitting on top of a variety of pillars of support that um, include religious and ethnic groups, cultural, economic, bureaucratic, and of course the security services, and then there's the general population beneath them. The theory of violent insurrection is that a small group of guerrillas interpose themselves between the population and those pillars. They start uh, by creating a violent insurrection to destroy those pillars. The pillars themselves tighten their loyalty around the elites and ultimately the leadership. The leadership basically counterattacks with repression that basically hits the guerrilla forces and always, virtually always creates collateral damage with the general population. And this is why you don't get democratic results, and this is why they basically have low probabilities of success, because the guerrilla forces usually don't start with a preponderance of military force relative to the authoritarian. The concept of civil resistance is very different, is that by using strikes, boycotts, and mass protests, um, what you're trying to do is you're trying to find elements of disloyalty within those um, pillars. One of the reasons why you maintain nonviolent discipline is because you, if you don't maintain nonviolent discipline and you're threatening the welfare of the people in these pillars, they're not going to defect. They're going to re basically um, reestablish their ties with the leadership because that's where they'll find their protection. And what you find is that these pillars move generally towards uh, comedy with the general population. Um, the leadership itself tries to counterattack with repression or terror, or whatever it may be, um, that we saw in the movies, but ultimately, that can create what we call backfire, where by doing so, you create more disaffection amongst the pillars and the population. So what is the general theory here? Um, I'm now gonna quote two paragraphs from a book on civil resistance. Uh, it was a compendium, and the person I'm quoting here is Tom Schelling, who forwarded my first book. You might know Tom Schelling is a man who won the 2005 Nobel Prize for economics on game theory, and he wrote about this subject, in this case, almost 45 years ago. And this is what he said. The tyrant and his subjects are in somewhat symmetrical positions. They can deny him most of what he wants. They can, that is, if they have the discipline organization to refuse collaboration. And he can deny them just about everything they want. He can deny it by using the force at his command. They can confront him with chaos, starvation, idleness, and social breakdown. But he confronts them with the same thing, and indeed, most of what they deny him, they deny themselves. And here's the key point. It is a bargaining situation in which either side, if adequately disciplined and organized, can deny most of what the other wants, and it remains to see who wins. The point here is that the skillful use of nonviolent resistance basically creates a, um, a pressure to delegitimatize, but it creates costs on the people who are active in that civil resistance movement. And what Tom Schelling has said, and what I think uh, is, is the case in the movements we've studied, who wins and who loses depends on who bears the biggest costs and who bears the biggest gains. And that's a skill-based activity. And let me stop there, and um, let me go on to the, hear Professor Goldstone. I'll take questions at the end. Thank you.
Thank you, Peter Ackerman. And now I'll invite up to the podium Professor Jack Goldstone. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here at Cato. Thank you, everyone, for coming. I know it's tax day, so you may have pressing issues on your mind. But I'm sure there's a lot of curiosity about the events in North Africa. Why did dictators who seem to be immovable suddenly find the strength of their regimes fail and their power dissipate? I think Peter is absolutely correct. The skills and the power of a deliberate campaign of nonviolent resistance are the immediate answer. Uh, these movements in Tunisia and Egypt were not spontaneous outpourings. They were the fruit of years of organizing, which had produced numerous student demonstrations and labor strikes. But it took years and certain occasions for that organization to strike a chord and draw the support that was necessary to strip away elite support for the leaders. I should say, I believe it's also important that the leaders in many ways created their own weaknesses and vulnerability. And it was the combination of this vulnerability by the ruling families and a well-organized, well-thought-out campaign of civil resistance that produced the rapid change. Now, what were those weaknesses? In fact, the regimes in Tunisia and Egypt had become classic instances of what the theory of revolutions calls a sultanistic or neo-patrimonial regime. That is, a regime that does not recognize the normal functions of law, but invests so much power in a chief executive that he places himself, in essence, above the law and disposes of the wealth and resources of society largely as he, he sees fit. Now, rulers who have that type of power have many levers to keep themselves in power. Usually, they use patronage to support, gain support in the military, in security forces, and among, among a variety of elites. And if managed well, the use of patronage can keep them in power for decades. Indeed, many personalistic rulers have stayed in power for years, sometimes throughout their lifetime. But such a regime can also slip up. It's possible, indeed, tempting for mismanagement to occur. What type of mismanagement in particular can we see in Tunisia and Egypt? And I will get to the cases of Libya and some of the other countries uh, in a couple of moments. First, in order to keep money flowing to his regime to fuel the patronage, an authoritarian leader in the modern world usually has to invest in some degree of foreign investment, educational improvement, productivity gains. But this effort at modernizing society in and of itself creates potential problems. Will those who receive an education buy into support of the regime, or will they find reasons to oppose it? Will those who gain a certain amount of material benefit from improving the economy feel that they have a stake in the regime? 
or will even more people be shunted aside and excluded from the gains that arise? In other words, the dictator has to play a careful game with patronage. It's necessary to win over the key segments of society, but not to alienate or exclude those who are also seeking to gain the benefits of growth. Well, it's a tough game to play, and sooner or later, most such dictators cave into the pressures from their family members, or from cronies, or even from the feeling of invincibility that comes from decade after decade in power, and they start treating more and more of the national wealth and more and more of the growth in the economy as something that exists for their benefit or the benefit of those closest to them. What happened in both Tunisia and Egypt is that regimes that started out as defenders of their country succumbed to the temptation to create a narrow circle of cronies whose corruption became first noteworthy, then a source of national revulsion. The situation in Tunisia was one in which, although Ben Ali himself was not as visibly and notably corrupt as some other rulers, his family members essentially started running a protection racket, challenging every business that stuck its head up and gained profits to contribute a share of those profits to the family purse, building seaside mansions, dictating terms, taking advantage of their closeness to power, Ben Ali's families undermined his moral authority at the same time that they enriched themselves. Family members, I'm sorry, I should say. Now, it is a critical factor, as Dr. Ackerman pointed out, for the regime to keep the pillars, the leaders of the economy, the leaders of the military, leaders of the security forces, on the side of the ruler. But that's also a risk in that if a leader allows strong business leaders to emerge, allows strong military leaders to emerge, they become potential rivals. And so typically, we will see these neo-patrimonial or sultanistic leaders try and make themselves indispensable by not creating any visible successors, not even creating a process for their succession, and trying to keep potential rivals at a distance. One common tactic is to divide the security forces so that the regular army, the police, the intelligence forces all have separate commands which report independently to the leader. This allows him to keep these forces separate with an eye on each other, and as rivals, he can control them. But it also makes it much easier for one of these groups to defect if they feel a situation is going against them. It's also the case that these sultanistic leaders, because they don't prepare an institutional path to succession, often look toward family members at the end of the day as the way to secure their regime and their patrimony. In Egypt, even though no one foresaw a revolution, analysts had been warning for years that the succession, as Hosni Mubarak aged, was going to be a moment of great risk. There were no obvious successors. There were no strong rivals. 
and Mubarak seemed more and more interested in shifting the succession to his son, Jamal, who had not come up through the military, who is not a particularly popular figure, and who indeed had been enriching himself through his banking career and access to foreign investment and sales of Egyptian property. This succession was going to be a problem in terms of keeping the elite on the side of the regime. But what we didn't anticipate is that the regimes in North Africa would face in 2010-2011 a perfect storm of global changes. First, prices, which had risen sharply in 2007-2008, and we thought, oh, that's an exceptional event. Well, they leapt forward again in 2010-2011. Problems in major wheat producers and rice producers, rice producers, restrictions of imports, led to an increase of about 50% in the price of core staples between the middle and end of 2010. Now, governments in North Africa had been subsidizing bread, they'd been subsidizing energy, they'd been guaranteeing jobs, all part of a patronage-based safety net designed to keep the population on their side. But since the late 90s, under pressure from international financial agencies to reduce subsidies, these regimes had been cutting back on the volume of subsidies, on the number of families who qualified for them, and more and more families faced market prices for some or all of their basic needs. They felt these price increases. In addition, the number of young people had been building up rapidly in these societies. We're familiar with the concept of a youth bulge, that is, a large number of young people compared to adults. And that's found throughout the world. What had been happening in much of North Africa and the Middle East, though, was a youth surge, that is, a recent increase in fertility combined by falling child mortality that led to huge increases, 50% over a few decades, in the number of young people who had survived to become active young adults. They were active, but often not actively employed. Those government-guaranteed jobs that had been the way to assure the loyalty, particularly of educated youth, had started to run out. And so while unemployment was modest among people who had grown up in the 70s and 80s, for young people who were born in the 90s and reaching late teens and early 20s just now, unemployment was horrific. Um, official unemployment was perhaps 25% in North Africa and the Middle East. That's double the rate of youth unemployment elsewhere in the world. But unofficial estimates suggest that as much as half the population under age 30 did not have regular jobs. We know that in Egypt, only about half of the men under 30 were married. Very unusual in a family-centered society, but that reflected the inability of people to get jobs that would allow them to start a family. So the sharp impact of rising prices fell upon societies with high rates of unemployment, low rates of marriage, and therefore exceptionally, exceptionally large numbers of young men who were not attached to the social order by marriage or employment, 
and frankly felt not only frustrated and poor, but humiliated. They felt that the system was denying them the dignity of a job and a family, was denying them the dignity of any control over their own lives. And it was this type of struggle to express themselves with dignity that led Mohamed Bouazizi to set himself aflame after he had been humiliated by an official of the Tunisian government. And people reacted to his self-immolation by understanding the degree of anguish, despair, and humiliation he felt, and by saying, we don't have to do this anymore. And starting small with a student movement that gained advice on civil resistance from veterans of the Serbian movement, reaching out to labor, student and labor organizers planned days of resistance in rural towns, in cities, first in Tunisia, where the movement spread quickly from the rural town where a fruit vendor had expressed his rage through self-immolation, spreading to the capital, where the military fairly quickly resolved that although their mission was to defend the country, they would not kill large numbers of their countrymen to defend a regime that was widely seen as corrupt and even a threat to the national welfare. In Egypt, labor and youth groups assembled and called for resistance on, brilliantly, National Police Day, a new holiday that was supposed to celebrate the police. And people turned out in the streets and said, we will celebrate the police. We will ask them to stand up for the country and therefore against the corrupt leadership that is damaging our nation. And although there were some episodes <coughs> of struggle, <coughs> excuse me, there were real risks of violence, there were threats against protesters in Tahrir Square that escalated to attacks by both uniformed and non-uniformed security forces, the young people and their supporters from the labor movement, from the Muslim Brotherhood, they all agreed on one thing. Now was the time. Now they had a chance. Now they saw after what happened in Tunisia that it was possible to wrest control away from a dominant leader. And just as in Tunisia, the military in Egypt, which had been increasingly excluded from the fabulous wealth that was seized by the civilians in Jamal Mubarak's circle, the military decided that they would not turn their guns on people who were simply asking for a government to be accountable. And as the protests escalated, it was not clear what would happen. But in many cities throughout Egypt, people for the first time said, I'm going to stand up. I feel like a citizen. I'm proud to be an Egyptian today because I am acting to control the destiny of myself and my country. And the movement spread not only through protests in Tahrir Square or in Alexandria, but at the very end when Mubarak seemed determined to simply leave power with Omar Suleiman, his uh, recently elevated second in command, professional strikes, lawyers, doctors, professors, shutting down critical institutions persuaded the military that Mubarak had to go. This vision, this belief, this power is now spreading throughout the Middle East, even Syria, a country that 
people assumed was on lockdown and in which this was the kind of country in which things could not occur. Civil resistance took root first in a provincial town in Dara, but has now spread to dozens of cities throughout the country. And the Syrian leadership is already on the defensive. They are trying to decide, do we strike back with more violence, or would that be counterproductive, as it has been already? When a regime has lost legitimacy in the sight of its people, striking back is no longer a way to gain strength. It may gain power briefly, but it does not resolve the situation. Let's talk about Libya in, in a moment, where we see exactly that. But in Syria, the government is now concerned. How much can we give? Where is the line at which people will accept a change without calling for more? In Libya, we see an example of a regime that is not really a state. The Gaddafi family commands their own regiments, loyal mercenaries or tribally affiliated groups that are not part of the regular military. Rather, these are troops that have been trained. They are called in the press loyalists, and that's an accurate description. Many of the mainstream institutional military have already defected, as have many bureaucrats and leaders. The question now is, will civil resistance be enough? We're seeing enormous bravery in Misrata, in Benghazi, but against the more technically advanced and better trained forces of the Gaddafi's loyalists, the outcome is in doubt. This is something perhaps we can explore in questions. I simply want to say that civil resistance began the struggle here. It's not clear whether civil resistance alone will end it. And this is where NATO needs to make a determination and where the world has to decide is this indeed one of those rare cases where governments can work effectively for the freedom of others? Or is this a case where government efforts will, as they often do, make things more difficult and move the goals further away? Everyone, of course, wants a prediction now. <clears throat> What's going to happen in the Middle East? Is the Muslim Brotherhood going to rise to power? Will more extremist Islamist groups take over hijacking these revolutions? Or will they move smoothly to a democratic outcome? Um, my answer is none of the above. What we've seen, however, that should give us hope is that in the last 30 years, there has been a major global shift in what happens in popular revolutions, such as those that took place in Egypt and Tunisia. <clears throat> Up through the 1980s, there were many revolutions against dictators. Porfirio Diaz was overthrown in Mexico, Chiang Kai-shek in China, uh, Batista in Cuba, and there are many others. <clears throat> but the prevailing vision that intellectuals held was the way that you overthrow a dictator, the way you achieve freedom, was to form a revolutionary party, arm that party, and overthrow the forces of the old regime. Unfortunately, None of those armed resistance movements, as Dr. Ackerman said, led to freedom. The strains of a military campaign, the ruthlessness required to take power, carried over and created ruthless authoritarian one-party states. Since 1986 and the People Power Revolution in the Philippines, we've seen something different happen. 
The prevailing models, the model of communism in China, Cuba, or the Soviet Union, even the model of an Islamic Republic in Iran have lost their appeal. People who want freedom, who want to be free of an intrusive state that mismanages their economy, seizes national wealth, and strips away their dignity, people who are striving to reclaim what they call a normal free life, the last thing they want is to enter a society that looks like Iran or the Soviet Union. And they're aware of that. Global communications, the internet, Al Jazeera, network TV and radio, have spread visions of different societies. And the Iranian model, the Soviet model, the Chinese model do not look equally good. The Chinese model of free markets with a firm hand has some appeal, especially in parts of the third world that are struggling to catch up economically. But for people who have just struggled to rid themselves of repressive government, the attractive model is for democracy. Now, is it a smooth, well-functioning, consolidated democracy? At first, no. This takes time. Dr. Ackerman spoke of patience. Typically, after a revolution, it takes five to 10 years for a government to be consolidated that will be stable. But what we've seen in the Philippines, what we've seen in the Ukraine, what we've seen in Georgia, what we've seen in Serbia, are that after dictators have been driven from the scene, the impetus to struggle forward and find a way to retain democracy, to make it work, remains strong. Not a single revolution against dictators in the last 30 years, not in Zaire, not in Indonesia, not in the cases I've mentioned, has led to an ideologically extremist authoritarian regime. Doesn't mean it can't ever happen again, but the odds of history suggest that the people of Egypt and Tunisia will continue struggling toward democracy. There may be backslides to authoritarianism. There may be episodes of instability. There may be concerns about rule of law, but it takes time. Even our American United States struggled under the Articles of Confederation for a dozen years trying to figure out how to make a democracy work. Now that we have the Constitution in many languages, we have a model in front of us, but we shouldn't assume that it's a model that translates in all respects. So I am optimistic, but call for patience in seeing what will happen. And I watch, like the rest of the world, with anxiety about what might happen in Libya, or to mention Yemen, or Syria. I am, however, glad to see the tide of democracy finally washing ashore in North Africa and the Middle East. Thank you very much, Jack. Uh, let me just note, if there are those of you who came here to see the film, we have another film we're showing uh, Friday of next week, April 29th. It's a sneak preview of a PBS documentary that updates Milton Friedman's Free to Choose with uh, my colleague Johan Norberg hosting and traveling to some of the places Friedman did. So look on our website for that event. And now let me open this up to questions. Be sure to wait until you are called on and a microphone gets to you so that everyone can hear the questions. Yes, right here. Uh, Professor Goldstone, regarding the, um, the military situation in Libya, it seems to me that this, is, this isn't that difficult. I've, I've understood that 
they perhaps have only 10,000 men under arms, that Gaddafi only has that many. Obviously, you're saying a great deal of the military has already defected. Does that also mean a substantial number of the rank and file? And so 10,000, and supposedly the rebels have about 1,000 people, which doesn't seem like much, but that seems like something that NATO could handle. Perhaps the Italian army could be involved, perhaps the French Foreign Legion. What, what, are, the, what are the chances, the possibilities, the consequences of that sort of thing? I wish it were that easy. You're correct that in military terms, if we were not concerned about civilian damage, if we were not concerned about the image among the billion Muslims in the world of Western armies invading another Muslim country, if it was just a matter of destroying Gaddafi's offensive capability, that could be accomplished. The problem is the boundary between somehow trying to do that while not creating a massive disruption and resentment of the kind that took place in Iraq. We don't want to, we want to end the civil war in Libya as soon as possible. We don't want to plunge a country into a greater civil war. Now, as to what is to be done, the good news is that the scholarship on civil wars suggests that they end either with a victory by one side or another, or with a hurting stalemate in which both sides are persuaded that they can't defeat the other, and therefore the only way to resolve the situation is through some type of third-party negotiations. I think at this point, what NATO is trying to do is not become an object of hatred by anyone in Libya. They don't want to be a key player that people turn to to settle things one way or the other. They want to create a situation where Gaddafi cannot impose his will throughout the country. And by creating that type of stalemate, I think they hope to open the way for Turkey or the Gulf Cooperation Council or someone else to negotiate a solution. Now, <clears throat> there are already kind of rumors of such discussions going on. The Gaddafis have said they will fight to the last bullet, but they will run out of bullets and they will run out of targets as long as NATO is able to keep their military forces limited to one half of the country. So I think that's the strategy right now. Limited force, minimal civilian casualties, stop a civil war, create a stalemate that leads to negotiations. Yes, in the back. Thank you. My name is Yaya Fanusi. I'm with the US for US Africa 2017 Task Force. I am the lead for the Special Operations Divisions. December 12 or 14 at the Carnegie uh, um, Endowment, there was a panel with the British Minister for International Development and uh, Marina Hatawe and then the former Deputy Libyan, uh, not Deputy Jordanian. After they finished talking, I made a statement. I said, with all that you have said, do you see an imminent popular uprising against the political class in those countries and in Africa? And before I finish, I said, listen, from what we know, there's going to be a popular uprising in which the political class in North Africa and Africa in general will be slaughtered. Only, I said, what you need to do, what America needs to do, is to support free and fair election and multi-party democracy. I'm making a statement now to you. 
get out of Libya. Don't mess with Libya. Don't mess with Gaddafi. Because you're in for a big surprise if you continue with what you're doing. Well, I don't think either of our panelists is doing that. But <laughs> if, if anybody wants to respond, you can. All right, let's take another question. Thank you. Yes, in the front row there, the second front row. Uh, you mentioned that 27% of violent revolutions have succeeded. And we now have violent uprisings in Libya and uh, Yemen. Can you distinguish what, what, was a, what it was about the 27% that succeeded that differentiated them from the remainder that did not? And are there any parallels to either Yemen or to Libya? That is, what, what set apart, uh, other than the fact that they won, are, can they be distinguished from the ones that lost? We haven't done that study. Uh, what the purpose of the study, and if you look at the pamphlet on the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, the study is in there. And by the way, it's turning into a book called Why Civil Resistance Works, which I commend to all of you. It's, it's, it's a seminal work that's data-driven. But our purpose was to show that the dynamics of a violent insurrection creates lower probabilities of success than its corresponding nonviolent insurrection. We unfortunately did not do the study to determine why the other 73% were more successful, were less successful than the 27. If I may, though, the reason why, there are several reasons why the doubling of probabilities for successful nonviolent resistance exists, and mainly it has to do with staying power. If you're about or in the process of losing a violent insurrection, you lose by basically having the violent insurrectionists, a small group of people rather detached from the population, be destroyed. An authoritarian has the dilemma of not being able to destroy the opposition that it seeks subsequent obedience from. So it gives a civil resistance movement a great deal of staying power because there's just limitations on what the authoritarian can do. I understand the advantage of civil resistance over armed insurrection. But what about armed insurrection work? Some of it, the database is pretty small. Well, we, we had 323 conflicts, and two-thirds were violent. I'm sorry, we didn't do that study. Perhaps we should have. In fact, I would suggest that we maybe should in the future, because it might, uh, might create some interesting, um, interesting uh, uh, conclusions. And in fact, we have a game of civil resistance where we inject into the civil resistance movement violent tactics to see what the dynamics are, and I guess if we were better schooled into what tactics are more successful than others, we might have a more credible way of integrating the two and see how that plays out. So it's an omission. I'm sorry for it, but it is an omission. Well, I'm happy to try and respond to that since I've studied revolutions throughout my whole career. I think the answer is the regimes that fall to both violent resistance and nonviolent resistance are regimes that are having difficulty holding elite support for financial or personal reasons to begin with. If you attack a strong, unified regime, you generally fail. Now, a lot of people, historically, revolutionary leaders, have believed 
Mao's credo that power comes from the barrel of a gun. They've chosen military options. They've attacked a strong unified government, and they've failed. And that's unfortunately been numerous. And if they use violence, they're more easily identified. And that makes them easier to crush if they're isolated from the population in general. Violent groups cannot cause a revolution acting by themselves. They need to be strongly integrated with and supported by the general public. This is something we've learned from guerrilla warfare. And if they don't do the organizational work and they don't do the political work, they won't succeed. Now, that's also true of nonviolent resistance. Now, nonviolent resistance has simply gained much greater awareness as a tactic that can succeed. And in recent years, people have chosen to attack vulnerable governments less often with rifles, recognizing that makes them more visible, more vulnerable, and often repels popular support. But using nonviolent means allows them to gain favorable media attention, draw popular support more readily. But the basic conditions, you need to organize, get popular support, you need to attack a government where the connections between the leader and the supporting pillars are weak, that holds in both types of resistance. All right, we have a question from Tom Palmer in the back, and go ahead and bring a microphone down here to be ready. Uh, Tom Palmer from Cato and the Atlas Network, and I'd like to ask our learned uh, discussants to address what happens after the resistance. So Mubarak is gone, although pretty much all the same guys are still in power, but they change the faces at the top. Does there need to be a deep look at the political institutions? And I'll address the question of the executive, because we hand out our Constitution. We had George Washington, which is one reason why ours has worked pretty well. He stepped down after two terms. Most places, the chief executive, when he's commander-in-chief, decides stepping down is not a good idea. Mamadou Koulibaly in Cote d'Ivoire warned of the election, what was going to happen. He said the problem is the presidential system in Africa, and he promotes as less likely to lead to a retrenchment and 20 years later, the same thing has to happen because a new uh, tyrant is in power with his circle of cronies. Do you have any thoughts on whether there should be a follow-up move to promote Westminster-style uh, democratic institutions as opposed to executive systems in which the president is also a commander-in-chief of the military? May I start? Um, the, uh, for some, the conflict is, in Egypt particularly, is not over. Uh, many of the uh, participants in the April 6th group don't feel it's over. They feel that things are not necessarily going the way they had hoped. And um, they've asked us what they should do about that. And, and what I said to them is go back to thinking about the ingredients that led to success in the first place and whether they're all in place. And that's why I said in my open remarks is that if you want to know what might happen in Egypt in the future, you have to understand the dynamics of how they get to this point. So in every single nonviolent resistance movement, success depends on three things. The first is uh, the capacity to unify around a vision and an organizational structure that will cede leadership to a group that people will respond to. That spade work probably wasn't completed before events overtook, uh, 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 surprised everybody who was in resistance. And so that basic spade work still needs to be done. There still needs to be a, 
a, um, a more sharply rendered vision of what the future needs to be to get buy-in by many, many, many more groups and uh, diversified by gender, by, by geography, by whatever is required to get that buy-in. I, I think the tactics that got them there, protests, have to be diversified into other kinds of tactics that are destabilizing so that you can continue pressure on the military elements that might be considered recalcitrant. And of course, what I keep telling them and, and, uh, is that they have to plan every day for the next day and the day after and the day after. They, they have to come together with a thought about how they're going to mobilize, how they're going to push back, how they're going to integrate their tactics with the larger vision. So these elements of unity, nonviolent discipline, and planning, which is what are key ingredients at the start, are still key ingredients at this, at this point. I don't know at the end of the day what the final structural solution will be, but I think they're far from that right now. And right now, the battle is still there. So what do you think, Professor? Well, the, there are two keys to resistance turning into a successful regime. One is transforming a social movement into an effective political party. That's not easy to do. A lot of people think their work is done when the social movement has achieved immediate goals, but there's a lot of work that remains in building a party structure that can consolidate those gains. Now, sometimes revolutionary leaders get outflanked by people who are better organizers. So we may see that happen. But the critical factor for the long run is the one you point to. Whoever becomes the first president of the new Egypt, whether it's Amir Musa or someone else, will they, at the end of the constitutionally mandated term limits, step down and peacefully hand over power to whoever succeeds them? This is the George Washington, Cory Aquino, Nelson Mandela moment. It doesn't need to be a charismatic leader who does this, but it needs to be a leader who accepts the rule of law and is willing to elevate leaving a democracy behind as more important than his own political power. Now, do we always find that? No. If we don't find it, what happens? There are two options. One, it may degenerate back to another round of authoritarianism, or it may require another round of popular protest. My belief is that the younger people who have seen the power and learned the method of organizing are not going to go away. They will be alert to this risk, and if they keep organizing and keep communicating, they will be an effective check on the system. All right, we have a question right here, and then take a microphone to the uh, front row of the balcony. That's, that gets right to my question, and <clears throat> I'm going to be just a little bit critical, but while agreeing with the analysis, that's, most of the analysis that's gone on and most of the wise counsel that both um, presenters are giving, first of all, um, Tunisia has the best demographic picture in the, in the Muslim world, and fertility's been dropping in every country but Palestine, basically, for decades now, because the, the, the reason for the youth problem is that mortality rates drop twice as fast as fertility rates. Um, and, 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 and the youth element of Tunisia has to do with the education of the population, not the, not the numbers. They don't have the numbers in Tunisia. In terms of Tunisian protest, um, there was no, really no protest. The most important protest since 91 was probably around the WISIS, and I doubt anyone here even remembers it. It was the October 18th movement, a couple lawyers, the hunger strike at the bar. The Tunisian opposition was as badly organized as the Libyan one. So there isn't this sort of history of strikes and boycotts and labor movements of significance. There was the one in Gabis in the south. So Tunisia, which is the most successful country you so need to far, get to a question. Yeah, is, is the least. So, so here's my... 
instead, I think what we're seeing is, you know, two countries that have had a successful uprising and change of regime. Uh, one country with a civil war, two sort of descending into chaos, seven with major protests going on, and seven with minor but important ones. We have 19 countries, all of whom, if this was not this year, would be on the front page of the news uh, relative to the normal political situation. So I'd like the panelists, beyond the sort of ingredients for revolution approach and beyond the sort of tactics for a regime change approach, to think about this world historical moment we're in, this wave of change, and you were just getting at it right now, and, and, and how we, looking at it, should, should sort of be on the right side of history. Well, you point to a very happy trend, which I'm glad to discuss, and that is the number of countries in the world who have some form of democratic government has been rising steadily. It's as strong a global trend as the fall in mortality and the fall in fertility. The only exception was during the period of the Great Depression. In the 30s, we had a rise of fascism. But since then, <coughs> we've seen an uninterrupted expansion of democracy. And in a sense, you could say, North Africa and the Middle East, middle-income countries, growing educated youth, they were essentially way behind the rest of the world, even behind sub-Saharan Africa, and it was overdue for there to be some type of democratic movement and reform there. I think that's right, but the other factors I mentioned help explain why it came together now. I will say this about Tunisia. Tunisia fertility dropped 20 years ago and so the number of under 20s is the lowest of any Arab country, that actually gives them good prospects for democracy because they have not quite as much volatility. But the number of youth in Tunisia, 20 to 24, is just about, about 2 or 3% lower than some of the other Arab countries, maybe 10% lower than Yemen, but still relatively high. This is still a youthful region. Okay, we have time for two more questions. We're going to take one there and then one right here. Uh, yes, I'm Russell King. I think the using the terminology uh, dictator or, and, and popular movements are a bit mis misleading. According to CarolineGlick.com, those Iranian Navy ships that went through the Suez Canal were uninspected, and then they went to Syria, and not long after, there was missile attacks on Syria. Also in the Mediterranean, it's the shortest uh, sea route from, from the east coast of the United States to the Indian Ocean. You have to go out through the Suez Canal and straight to Bab al-Mandab, there's no other way, and that's near Yemen, the Strait of Bab al-Mandeb, and, and also the super tankers, the oil tankers go through the Suez Canal, and the Somali pirates, according to uh, SaveOurSeafarers.com, have about 300 seafarers hostage. So could you t uh, talk about the uh, impact on transnational issues such as shipping, oil, uh, U.S. support of its military, and the defense of Israel? I'd like to just step back with the, this question, and I'd leave that, that question to you. Um, the, the work we do is not about tactics. The work we do is about linking tactics into a strategy and the importance of developing a strategic theory. That's a skill-based activity that might occur in, under any set of conditions, and that, in fact, you can take two absolutely similar sets of conditions and get two very different results, and the difference is based on the fact that one group is working uh, with greater skill than another. So I just wanted to add that clarification. But on the, I'll leave that question, if I can, to you. Well, we haven't gotten into the international implications, but they're huge. Uh, they're implications for Iran and Israel and all of the relations in the Middle East. They're implications, of course, for NATO in terms of migration from North Africa to 
Italy and Greece and France if the crisis in Libya continues. Let me simply say this is, we're going to look back on 2011, not just as a time of revolts in Tunisia and Egypt, but I think as a time when the complexion of international relations in the world as a whole has changed. We're going to find out whether, in fact, democracy can take root in the Middle East, and that's going to have huge implications from Saudi Arabia and Iran to Oman and Morocco, although it will take a decade or two to play out. So I think the questions you raise are very important, but even the issues of trade through the canal, whether pirates will be controlled, all of this is part of the bigger question of what type of governance structure is going to replace the monarchies and dictatorships that have prevailed in the Middle East for the last 30 years? Are we going to see accountable popular movements? If so, are they going to align with the East or the West to be independent? And how effectively will they control their borders and the surrounding seas? All of these are questions we can't answer yet. All right, last question right here. Uh, Fred Smith's Competitive Enterprises. I guess my major question is who gives a damn? It seems to me that what y'all have been talking about is changing in the political structure of nations. And if you leave power in a centralized format, which neither of you have addressed, then if you're a military dictatorship, you want to use the existing power structure, the coup d'etat model. If you're a democratic uh, revolution, you want to have the people be the dictators in a society. As long as power remains concentrated after these revolutions are over, who cares? Market economies and other forces can disperse power, but all democracy does is disperse political power. And political power is a danger, not whether or not it's exercised by the mob or by a dictator. Or at least that's what I thought Cato and I believed in. Well, I think if you want to talk about, Fred, the prospect of property rights, I think as a result of a civil resistance movement, the advancement of property rights, which is something I know is a concern of yours in Egypt, in my opinion, will be much, much higher than, uh, than it was under Mubarak, which, in which it was terribly constrained. Nobody will admit they had any property. Uh, you couldn't get contracts. There was no mortgage market. Let's see what happens when we play out what a secular, uh, a secular um, uh, government looks like and its openness to the rule of law and property rights. And then, then we can see whether we give a damn or not. So I personally do give a damn. but. I'll see what the professor says. Let, let, me, let me just give you two anecdotes of people who are, care and who are directly affected by this. I teach a course on democracy, democracy assistance. I had a student from Lebanon last year. And the key point I tell my students is it's a mistake to think of democracy simply as electoral competition for power. Because if people, if all it is is people choosing which nasty or corrupt party steals from them, it's not a serious choice. What democracy is about, it's really a way of holding governments accountable and protecting human rights and market choices that allow people to realize their control of their own lives. And the student from Lebanon said, you know, I never understood that democracy was about human rights and freedom. That's a whole different way to think about it. But it's that thought that I think is penetrating into the Middle East now, and I see this in the second anecdote, which is a person in Syria who was interviewed just in the last week who said, we went out in the streets to shout. That's all we felt we could do. But as more and more people joined us, and as you start shouting, I started to feel for the first time like a real Syrian who mattered, a citizen of my country who had a voice. Those are messages of democracy that are very different than you know, your concern. Now, there's always a risk that democracy can be taken over. 
but the people who are making these revolts and organizing and taking the risks, they have vision of freedom, self-realization, development, citizenship, and government accountability. That's what their target is. That's what they're shooting for. Thank you, Jack Goldstone. Thank you, Peter Ackerman. We should probably do this event again in a few months because I suspect there will be more to say. Uh, now let's go upstairs and have a glass of wine.